whenever <clears throat> truth is laid down before us, sometimes it's important to look at contradictions to what we learn from God's word concerning fellowship. We've talked about this in this lectureship series where we're speaking on this particular subject. The fact that declaration from God, when God speaks, that's the realm in which we work. He speaks his mind, he may give commandments, he may give forth the principles that we're to follow, but that becomes our guideline. It is absolute truth as it, relies, it resides in Jesus Christ. And because of that, people who are wanting to walk with God are going to walk in that truth. I've had somebody tell me that if we just knew the truth, we wouldn't have to study what all the error is. We wouldn't have to talk about false teachers. Just tell me the truth. Well, Peter didn't write his second epistle that way, did he? He wrote the things that were happening there that they might not be deceived and turn away from the truth. He taught them the truth, but he also told them what the mockers were doing. And that pattern we need to follow today to realize here we have the standard for fellowship, how we're supposed to be abiding in the doctrine of Christ, but I thought it would be instructive to look at the historical perversions of fellowship. And it's not the first time that Romans 14, for example, has been, been used. But when we look at fellowship, can you imagine that homosexuality would be an issue of which to, to follow? We look at Romans the 14th chapter that we're not to judge one another, we're not to be involved in setting at naught one another. Everybody has their personal views, and we talked about that's in a limited context. But Norman Penninger, in his book, Time for Con Consent, spoke about the fact, you know, God doesn't clearly condemn monogamous, loving, homosexual unions. He didn't call it marriage, did he? he called it unions. But if they're monogamous, like, I'm going to be true to my man. I'm going to be true, if I'm a woman, true to my, my woman, my significant other, where we have a loving union. God does not specifically condemn that, he said. And what happens is that we begin to see the consequences of that. He says, well, Romans 14 argues that those who reject homosexual people from fellowship in the church have utterly failed to understand the Christian gospel. That's what Stott, referring to Penninger, said in Christianity uh, today. 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. Did Paul understand the gospel? They understand what that Christian gospel was. When he united and brought together those who were not going to inherit the kingdom of God. He spoke about people of idolaters and fornicators and adulterers and, and all of those things. But he also talked about the effeminate. Those who are abusers of themselves with males, with men. Speaking about homosexuality and some of the newer translations will spell that out for us. Did Paul understand the gospel? Did he understand the principles of the New Testament teaching? Was he inspired of God to write Romans 14? Well, that same God inspired him to write 1 Corinthians 6 and verse 9. That such people are ones that will not inherit the kingdom of God. And what should be hopeful to people is that that was what you once were. 
Such were some of you. But now you've changed. You're sanctified. And it shows you that you can change. This is a choice that we make. It's involved a lot of times with the circumstances around us and the influence of the world that says, well, I'm tired of this relationship. I'll explore a new one. We leave God out of our knowledge. Romans, the first chapter, we find what it does it lead to? Sexual perversion. That which is against nature. Does Romans 14 deal with these matters? Is this indifferent with God? We studied that principle in Romans, the 14th chapter. I think not. This is a perversion of what we're speaking about. But the gates are open. And Romans 14 has been used to be that open end where we can put things in in our particular society and realize, well, this is the Christian spirit. This is understanding the Christian gospel. And they do not understand that. And we know that because we have the truth. We have the word of God behind that. Well, we move on and realize that in this idea of, I get that change. We come to the 1800s. And those were the difficult times in which the church in our country was dealing with missionary societies where churches would send particular representatives and have this missionary society to gather the funds and to bring the gospel to other people. And the argument was that indeed this is a more efficient way of doing things. Little churches can do a lot of work. And there were small churches, and they did not have a lot of income in that local church. And so combining those churches somehow would be involved in showing forth that we'll get the gospel spread out there. That same principle was involved in our more modern times, where we had the Herald of Truth, had the sponsoring church arrangement. And the idea is more efficient. And yet when we see the pattern set forth of how the gospel was spread in the New Testament times, we realize that church, a church sent to the preacher. There was that direct communication, that direct oversight that was involved in preaching the gospel. That church would be responsible to that preacher. That preacher's not teaching the truth. We wouldn't have to go through a board and decide, well, is he worthy of fellowship or not? The local church had elders in 1 Peter 5 and verse 2. They were to oversee the flock that's among them. Not a separate society from the church, but that individual collectivity of people in which that elder was qualified and they saw that and he was leading as a, an elder, a bishop, a pastor over that local church. And when Paul writes to the Philippians, it says, no church had fellowship with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but ye only, the Philippian church. One church was sending to Paul. A few years ago, there was a debate in Lubbock, Texas, in which the argument was made by those who are advocating the sponsoring church, is that you had the sponsoring church arrangement in that passage. Do you read it there? Well, no one had, the, had fellowship in the matter of giving and receiving, but ye only. And that here was a church, did it give to a sponsoring church? Paul did the receiving, which church gave the giving? Was it a sponsoring church arrangement? No, it was that church, that local church. And they've tried to put in the sponsoring church and things. It doesn't fit in that passage. 
That's a perversion of that passage. Well, that's one church supporting the preacher. Do we have example where other churches did? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 and verse 8, I've robbed other churches to be ministering unto you. There's a plurality of local churches. Did they work through a, a society? They worked through a spotring church? No, they didn't. He's, they're all involved, sitting directly to that preacher. And he received help from one church. He received it from many churches, but there's not any missionary society there. And when we start thinking in our wisdom that we can do something more efficient, that we leave the pattern, we are thinking we're, thinking we're more wise than God. There are a lot of things that come that are very efficient when you have that direct connection with, with the preacher. We, our government is set up with a house of representatives, and they are voted by the people. Those are the, that's the people's house because they have some direct relationship with that particular representative. That's where our government was set up. God set up his church that way too. And the fact that each church would be involved in sending to uh, the preacher that we see there. Is one church comprised of local churches? Did you know Alexander Campbell believed that? He became the first president of the missionary society of his day. And he believed that the one church is made up of local churches. And we think about denominationalism, we think, well, there's the argument that here's the body of Christ, but it's made up of Presbyterians and Episcopalians and Catholics, that they, they are indeed uh, distinct local bodies. Alexander Campbell wasn't arguing that he said the local churches comprise that. And what we see in the Bible is that that's not true. Individuals make up the body of Christ, not the collectivity of local churches. And that indeed was something that the Bible clearly teaches us. In 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, in verses 12 through 14, we see that the one body is made up of different members. But it's not made up of just one member. It's made up of different. But what are these members? Well, they can be Jews or Greeks. They could be bond or free. Those are individuals and being from different ethnic groups. They're individuals that are dealing with the class situation that they have being bond or free. They are involved with individual people. That makes up the one body. It wasn't a collectivity of churches. It wasn't a, a different denomination that makes up the one church. And yet that was the argument. It's more efficient to have the missionary societies. It is indeed, after all, we're all made up of one church, so let's just combine our funds in the churches in order to accomplish that. But in comes the missionary societies, and that's what we see taking place. Instrumental music came in as well. We know in Ephesians 5 and 19, we're to be speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. We're to be singing and making melody in our heart and, our, and to, the, to the Lord. And there again is where we see, well, where do we make our melody? Where do we strike the chords? What, what instrument are we striking when we are worshiping and singing? We're striking the chords of our mind. It is a spiritual relationship with God that we are manifesting and we are speaking to one another when we're singing. 
We are making melody in our heart unto the Lord. We're involved in teaching and admonishing one another with the words that are very scriptural, that come from God's word. We let the word of God dwell in us richly, that we're able to teach in our, in our songs. And we do that. But where is the authority for the instrumental music? Have you ever wondered why God doesn't condemn instrumental music in the New Testament? I know what he authorizes, and we remain in that pattern. But the Bible is replete in the Old Testament that you sing psalms unto God with a harp and specifies the instrument that is taking place and used on that occasion. But all of a sudden, we all know this, and denominational people know this, that all of a sudden, when we come to the New Testament, it's just silent. Every time you see, eight times you see in the New Testament where singing is involved, it is involved with speaking to one another. It's singing hymns. There's no playing of an instrument that we see there. Have you ever understood why you did that? Why that happened? And why didn't God just sit there and condemn it? Well, he authorized this, and he wants us to remain in it. Have you ever thought when the high priesthood changed, that worship changed in the temple? It wasn't that we have a high priest that's coming on because another one died. Jesus is never going to die again, but he became our high priest. The, the authority from God through the high priesthood and relationship, it changed the whole worship of God's people. No longer was that under the Jewish dispensation, but we find here it was a spiritual relationship. The sacrifices ended. Just think about how much was tied to those sacrifices. And the instrumental music that was taking place. And the whole idea of worship changed with the old law going by the wayside. And the, and the worship that was taken, connected with the old law. And all of a sudden, it's just silent because this is how Christians are supposed to worship. And we don't offer another sacrifice of the blood of bulls and goats. Jesus did that one time. And we're offering the sacrifice in our song, the fruit of our lips. And we see that that's the way we ought to go. But in the 1800s, things and deeds were changing. The missionary societies were coming in, and instrumental music was being brought in to the church. And the idea of fellowship was going to be involved with that. And Romans 14 comes to the forefront. When McGarvey and Pendleton, they were involved in writing a a commentary on the book of Romans. McGarvey died. Pendleton finished it. Here's his comment on Romans 14 and verse 3 where we find that God receives the one who can eat meats and he receives him. There's that fellowship we talked about uh, last night. In modern times, controversy over meat sacrifice to idols is unknown. But the principle still applies as to instrumental music, missionary societies, etc. I want you to listen, see if this reminds you of what we established from Romans 14 last, last night. Such matters of indifference are not to be injected in the terms of salvation or set up tests of fellowship. As to them, there is neither contempt. Remember the strong one, he's not to set it other one at naught, despised, neither contempt on the one part, 
nor judgment on the other. There's the weak brother condemning the other. It's not going to happen. It's not going to be test of fellowship. But baptism, however, baptism, however, is not a matter of indifference. Being as much a divinely established term in the plan of salvation as faith itself. Mark 16, 16. Well, I'll make a comment like that in Romans 14. It's because we're going to bring in missionary societies, as Pendleton was going to advocate. We're going to bring in the instrumental music. And we're going to be involved in, in going that way because of Romans 14. You don't set it not. You don't judge it's not going to be a test of fellowship. It's a matter of what? Indifference. Indifference to God? When he's silent in the New Testament about worshiping with instrument and music, there's no examples of that. Is he indifferent when he says, this is how I want to be worshipped in song? I don't think it's a matter of indifference. Like Matthew 19.9 is not a matter of indifference. But what we see here is this Romans 14 has been used in history to be involved in perverting fellowship. And that's what we have to be uh, aware of. McGarvey is a great example of what it's involved when you do fellowship error, when you don't believe those things, but you fellowship those who are. In a Harding Lectures in 1950, Jesse P. Sewell, who was a student of McGarvey, he gave a lecture about his grandfather. And in that lecture, he was giving forth what uh, the history that, that took place and what followed in that time. In 1902 and 1903, as he's telling the Harding lectures, I was preaching for the Pearl and Bryan Streets Church in Dallas. I lived in Dallas, and I remember that church. Brother McGarvey, an old man at the time, was invited to speak, and he was speaking at the Central Christian Church at this time in Dallas. We had three men in the Pearl and Bryan Streets Church who had graduated from the College of the Bible in Lexington under Brother McGarvey. They were admirers of him. They suggested that we invite Brother Garvey to preach at Pearl and Bryan that night. We did so. I, just, I was just a boy at 24 and 25, and I was sitting by the side of this great old man on the front seat, waiting for the service to begin, and he sat there talking. Brother McGarvey said to me, Brother Sewell, I want to say something to you. If you'll accept in the spirit in which I mean it. I told him I'd appreciate anything he had to say to me. And he said these words. Don't ever let anybody persuade you that you can successfully combat error by fellowshipping it and going along with it. I have tried, McGarvey said. I believe to the start that was the only way to do it. I want to pause here. Those in our time that put marriage, divorce, and remarriage, and the teaching of that, Romans 14, and how to keep unity. I've argued this is probably the only way to keep unity. McGarvey says, I thought at one time that was the only way to do that. I never held membership in a congregation that uses instrumental music. I have, however, 
accepted invitations to preach without distinction between churches. They used it in churches that didn't. I've gone along with the papers and magazines and things of that sort. During all those years, I've taught the truth as the New Testament teaches it to every young preacher who has passed through the college of the Bible, yet I do not know of more than six of them, six of these men who are, trying to, who are preaching the truth today. And there's a great lesson there that your influence will go with your fellowship more than your teaching. Think about it. It always will. What you go along to get along with, that influence will go that way more than you saying, I'm going to tell them the truth about this. I'm going to teach the truth about this. And I say, You're, that's not the way you ought to go. But he made no distinction between those who used it and those who didn't. Mr. McGarvey's example is for all times. But it's there in the sands of time. And we're uncovering it today to realize that great principle. He was a great old man at this time. And he would die in 1911. But we're alive now. I think we can learn from that history. Premillennialism. Did you know that was a, a battle being fought in the 20s and 30s? A lot of part in this part of the country. And there was the idea that, well, that's going to be a matter of indifference. It matters what, when you, what you think about the kingdom and so forth. But it was what's happening in the New Testament is that when you set up, well, we haven't set up the kingdom yet. One day it's going to come. What about the church? Is this a parenthesis in history? In Ephesians, the third chapter, verse 10 and 11, here was the, the, the wisdom of God that had been hidden and now is preached to the gospel. And it was making known to all the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. He wanted angels to look at this. They had no place in salvation, but they were interested in the salvation of men. And here was the church that indeed was declaring the wisdom of God, how Jews and Gentiles, how people who are slaves and free can come together and be unified in this one body. But it was according to the eternal purpose of God. The church was not just a parenthesis to put in because the Jews rejected their king. And one day we're going to set up the kingdom like I always planned on it to be. The church redemption was in the mind of God in eternity. And he set it forward and had to establish that when man sinned. He had that plan. But see, there were certain men in this day of premillennialism that was leading the fight for it, R.H. Bowl. And he was a prominent preacher. He was a prominent preacher, had a lot of respect among, among brethren. Ed Harrell writes in his history of the Church of Christ in the 20th century, he says, some leaders of the churches of Christ never believed that premillennial convictions should be a test of fellowship. And many influential older preachers refused to denounce R.H. Bowl, who they regarded as a pious man. Does that sound familiar of what we've heard this weekend? Why is it that the teacher... Homer Haley was said he's not a false teacher. 
We're going to have articles of Romans 14 to show that you can disagree with him and he can disagree with you on that matter and you still can have fellowship and unity. Sometimes it's the prestigious place of the preacher that he's a good man. He's a pious man. He's an honest man. And therefore we look at the teaching is not significant to us. Whenever we have a concept of the church as not being the rule of God and how God as eternal purpose established the church, it's contradicting the word of God. And you know what? I don't find a lot of premillennial churches of Christ in this country. I know they exist, and probably in this area. But why is it that we don't have many of the premillennial churches of Christ? The people I talk to in denominationalism, premillennialism is an established fact in their minds. Denominations are almost all in agreement. They may have different ideas about when he's going to come, when the kingdom is going to be established. But the idea of the premillennial doctrine is so pervasive in the religious world. Try to study with somebody, what topic would you like to talk about? Well, I like to talk about the rapture. I like to talk about Armageddon. I like to talk about the establishment of the kingdom. And denominational preachers do that. How come? This was prominent in our history among our brethren. And you don't find many of them around. It's because some men stood up against it. Some men went to the truth of God. Some men began to preach in down our area. Foy Wallace. Preachers taught on that in Houston. And all sorts of people came. And the truth was met head on in meeting the error of that day. Oh, maybe not, not like their style. People may say, well, they're, they're trying to just cause trouble. But the truth was established in the hearts of people because they didn't get along with it. They just didn't go along. Even because maybe some people are pious, they can be wrong. They could be sincerely wrong. And we need to learn from that, that indeed we have to confront that and do it in a, in a loving manner, but it has to be confronted. We move on to the Grace Unity Movement in the 1970s. And there was a time where you're trying to say, well, how can we have fellowship with denominations is what it was leading to. And you begin to say, well, what is the gospel? Oh, it's the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. What is the gospel among our brethren who were going to bring in uh, a, a broader line of a fellowship? Well, you're going to have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and there's going to be that belief and what goes with that, and then the act, baptism. So if you believe he's the Son of God and you're baptized, mission of your sins, you have that gospel core belief, Doctrinal issues will not matter. It won't make any difference. We can unite on this core, but the other part will, will just leave to you know, your personal conscience and so forth. And that indeed was happening. But you know what? You're making the distinction where God doesn't. Oh, there's teaching in the Bible about preaching and teaching. But in 1 Timothy 1, 10 and 11, there are some sins that are set forth. Fornication and adultery, men-stealers and liars and so forth. And other things which are contrary, 
and other things that come in that category are contrary to the sound doctrine which is according to the gospel. Blessed God. You think about the gospel and the sound doctrine that come together. Healthy teaching is found in the gospel. It's not just the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ and authorities to be baptized. There was a doctrine. Apostles' doctrine is what people followed. And they could be unified in that in the New Testament. But that's how the distinctions were being made. Well, we fast forward a little bit. And Max Licato, he once was Church of Christ, and down our way they changed their side. They're no longer a Church of Christ. He says, in the context of speaking on the thief of the cross, this is the remarks he made. What could Jesus do to extend a hand that was far greater than the canyon between a Baptist and a Church of Christ or a Methodist and a Church of Christ? Here's the thief on the cross. He extended Today you'll be with me in paradise. What a canyon. Because what could Jesus do to extend a hand from him who has never sinned? To he who has done nothing but sin. Thief on the cross. Far greater than any canyon that your eye will ever bridge is the canyon that Christ bridged. That's what he did. And my question is this, he continues. If Christ can do all to accept us, Can't we do something to accept his other children? Denominational people, they believe the core gospel. Maybe baptism is different. That's just doctrine to him. It moves on and now it gets shorter and shorter. We just believe in Jesus. Other children. Doesn't Christ accept us with all of our doctrinal misinterpretations? And curiosities and peculiarities and unevenness? Unevenness? Can't we do the same for others? That's the reason we must accept one another. As he's referring to the principles of Romans 14, he says. But not because they are right. Not because we are right. Because he is right. Sounds persuasive, doesn't it? And yet here he is. That Here's other children in denominations. And we realize how, did, how do people were added to the church... That's God's people. All these contradict those things, but that's your doctrine. That's your curiosity. Uh, you're probably a hypocrite in that, and, uh, even in all of that. It, it's, you've got your peculiarities. And those, those doctrinal things divide us. Look at this canyon that was bridged between Jesus and the thief on the cross. Can't we do that with the children? Thief on the cross. Jesus hadn't died yet to set up his kingdom. Hadn't died yet to set up how people are going to be saved after his death and his resurrection. He had the power on earth to forgive sins. Forget that. Just look at his example. It's not because you're right. Not because I'm right. Because he's right. So can we bridge that? Even though that will be an error in contradicting uh, the word of God. No wonder they have no problem of fellowshipping those people. But I lived through this. In my young days, Kathy and I first married. We were in a church. And I admired the preacher. But he came there at a difficult time, and he was studious. He taught us a lot about the Old Testament that I never thought about before. We're young, impressionable. And I had a lot of respect for him. But I began to see 
what he was doing with this church. First of all, bought all of our young married couples, and we had a bunch of them, bought us all a, a new international version of the New Testament. He began to preach, and this is not a hyperbole. He preached for a solid 52 weeks on the grace of God. That's a marvelous subject. But his grace of God was that, do you think you know everything? You think at this time that you have perfect knowledge of everything? He took us to the Corinthian letter and said that we got to be reconciled to God and that in Christ we indeed can have our perfection with God and it's because of Christ we look to him. The idea of God's righteousness, we're the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. His righteousness clothes us. We got neo-Calvinism taking place in there and I didn't know what was hitting me. And I'm not saying I know everything, but here you think you have all your doctrinal things in order, and here's how it was applied. He was going to ask a Methodist preacher that he is friends with in a gospel meeting to lead the prayer. He had gotten that, there was no problem with him. No problem with Max Lucado either. And the point is, Jerry, you think you know everything? You think you're, you know, you, you know instrumental music? He may not know about instrumental music yet. But what was not being said, what, he's part of God's children too. And we're going to extend this hand. We're going to bridge this chasm that Lakato uh, says. I kind of realized, hey, that's what this man was doing. That's what his man was doing. That church split three ways. Most of them have gone into denominationalism. Some of them have left the faith, my friends. That preacher, because he took on a, he was an elder, and he did something that he didn't contact the other elders. They fired him, not because of his teaching, because he abused his place as an elder. Years later, I saw a newspaper article about him. And what he was doing, he was having to worship in his home. I knew that. The liberal people in the, in the church, they didn't trust him. He didn't have a home anymore with the conservative people, so he was at a funeral home. And anybody that didn't have a preacher, he'd preach a funeral. And they were praising him for that. He's dead now. But I look back at what we had as young couples, what a waste that was to toy with doctrinal error. And we could be united in the truth. And don't think this doesn't, can't deceive you. We had people in that congregation that thought Baptists can be fellowship. Do not Baptists get baptized into the church? In the Baptist church? Well, they get baptized in the church, they accept them. That's how confused our minds were. And the Cato said, that's wonderful because you're bridging a gap because you don't know everything. I don't know everything, but I know what I know to be truth or error. Teach me something else. But what I do know, I know, and I want to honor God, and I think you do that as well. Ed Harrell, in his defense of Homer Haley, and he does that. First article, of that articles of 17 articles. Homer Haley was the, the first one of that series. Where Homer Haley 
who was looked upon as, well, we don't agree with his doctrine, but he plied his arrow on divorce free marriage. It wasn't a theory any longer, but he did this in Berlin, New Mexico in March of 1988. Men began to, to talk to Homer Haley about, about his doctrine, and I, I have letters and I know how respectful they were, despite what other people have said. They were trying to, to reach him. But he had made up his mind. He had been holding these doctrines for a long time. And he indeed was involved in going to, to write the book. Well, he writes in 1991, but 1988, there's already the defense of him. And Ed Harrell led the way. He says, it's perfectly proper that some congregations have not and would not invite Homer Haley to preach of the position that he holds on the subject because of that. Others rightly, I believe, have decided to use him in spite of the difference. As I said a while ago, Arch Bowl, he was a pious man. Well, Ed Harrell looked at, at Homer Haley as an honest man, a sincere man. He wasn't out to destroy churches. And he was just, this is his personal belief. And Romans 14 was going to be the avenue in which Ed Harrell would argue, this is the way we've done it in history. And you know, he's right. <laughs> a lot of times that's been true. But that doesn't make it right. And Romans 14, we've established those were matters that were indifferent with God. And that hasn't changed. But that was his defense of him. And when we look at how his, his articles would go forth, he said, well, it was promoted in history this way. This is the way we've always done it. And that seems to be the right way to go. And he has believed that today. Churches didn't divide in fact, there are some churches, and I've heard a history of uh, issues facing the church. And they go to missionary societies, instrumental music, institutionalism. But in the 1960s, that's when the history of the church ended in a lot of churches. This did not happen. This is not something that divided churches. This is not something we're going to deal with. History ends in 1960. But in the 80s and 90s, this was the battle we're dealing with. And how we did it in history is instructive. It's interesting to look at, but it doesn't make it right. And we looked at how the history was unfolded, and then also, I get this going, how clarity was judged. You know, Matthew 19, 9, there's a lot of different ideas about that. And there was a debate, well, why did God put us in this situation? That so many different views could be set forth. I don't know. But it doesn't lack clarity, does it? It's kind of fuzzy in Matthew 19, 9, in those verses. And he was writing about that. He was involved in doing that. And Judge Honesty, I believe Homer Haiti is an honest man. And those things deal with motives, and we can't read motives. But that's where the point was being made. And when you get through reading, why is he not testing the doctrine? We don't test the doctrine. See, that's already been determined because it is so unclear. It's already been determined because, well, that's the way history is because we've always had difficulties over that subject. And therefore, this is how we ought to get along. Romans 14 has a lot to say about that. But I don't read where, let's take his doctrine, brethren, and let's look at what is taking place. We've already noticed that indeed the apostles had the truth. 
They had the infallible truth, what they spoke, what they wrote. We can rest assured that is indeed the truth. Why not test the teaching? John says that we're, we're to be involved in doing that. In 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 6, and here's the problem. That indeed the Corinthians were to be involved in not going beyond the things that are written. That no one be puffed up one against another. When you go beyond the things that are written, that is something different from what God has set forth. It, it maybe contradicts it in a lot of ways. Then you have the promotion of the man. And after all, the man is honest. After all, the subject doesn't lack clarity. After all, this is how we've kept unity in the churches before. But what about the doctrine? What about the teaching? Why didn't we have that discussion? Because it's already determined that's unclear. And Homer Haley had already determined that's what I believe. And I will write my book. And I'm not going to study that with anybody any longer. And that's the way he ended. I ask you, why not apply the appropriate pattern? We established this last night. Sound words. And love and faith. It's not judgmental and, and being sectarian about it, but it's love and faith is connected with the sound words. And we need to express that. And the pattern I suggest to you again, Romans 14 was dealing with the practice. 2 John 9 was dealing with the teaching. How come we reversed it? How come we reversed it? Because we honored a man that was prestigious. And that's how we've been involved in dealing with things. I'd like to close the minutes I have. Why not apply the appropriate pattern that we see in 1 John? I'll move very quickly with this. But I want us to abide in the truth. When you read the second chapter of, of 1 John, it speaks about an anointing that took place. That indeed they were to abide in. And it was to see in verse 27, it is that teaching that he wants to abide. So what is that anointing? Oh, that's, that, that's be, the Holy Spirit's upon you. And first century times, that indeed the Holy Spirit came upon them through the laying of the apostles' hands so they could have infallible truth before them. And he says, it's not the experience of, having, of being anointed. He wants that anointing to abide with them as it teaches. We need to abide in that teaching. See, there were many deceivers out there, and he speaks about the Antichrist, and they are indeed denying that Christ came in the flesh, and what we're we supposed to do with that, we're to let that anointing stay with us, because it is the truth, and there's no lie in that truth, and therefore we'll be able to, to contradict that teaching. And don't be deceived by it. Truth was going to be very important and very necessary. Well, when we come to 2 John, do you see the importance of truth? How does he open his letter to the elect lady? The elder unto the elect lady and her children, whom I love in truth. And that not I only, but also they that know the truth. For the truth's sake. Which abideth. It's abiding in us. What is it? Truth. I love you in truth. Meaning, I love you truly. But we're here for the sake of the truth. Truth is 
something you can hold to. It's a sound doctrine that you can know and believe and know the truth and understand that. And he's writing for the truth's sake to, be, to help people understand. And so he's very happy as the chapter goes on to hear that children walking in the truth. He rejoices in that. When you're in fellowship with God, truth becomes what you're after. That's the inner core of your being. I want the truth. I want the truth on marriage, divorce, remarriage. I want the truth on sponsoring church arrangements. I want, I want the truth on every doctrine, instrumental music. I want the truth. Let's study the truth. Let's test the spirits. That's the person in fellowship with God. As we've seen, that's not the way it has always been. But he said, well, I read with you last night that this lek lady was not to receive that teacher. And not to invite him into her house. Not to give him any Godspeed. That sounds pretty rude. That's not like a Christian, is it? Well, I can't bridge the gap a little bit. Jesus did with a thief on the cross. Here's a man. He may be honest and but he's, he's wrong, but who cares? He's honest and he's pious and he, he's godly. Did you notice the connection that we see in 2 John when he speaks about loving one another in verse 5? He says, this is the commandment in verse 6, even as ye heard from the beginning that ye shall walk in it, I am to love my brethren. He says, for many deceivers are gone into the world, even they that confess not that Jesus Christ came in the flesh. We deal with a doctrinal thing that he says in chapter 2 of 1 John, that indeed they were to be aware of. Let that anointing abide in you. Let that teaching abide in you. And notice what he connects. He gives a reason for all these deceivers are out here. And what does he say to do? Love your brethren. Love your brethren. How does loving my brethren help us to avoid deceivers that come our way? Because you love the truth. And because you love the brethren's souls, you will not receive that false teacher. He's not bearing, he's not bringing the teaching of Christ. And for the sake of the love of truth, for the truth's sake, and for the love of brethren, you'll do that. Because you're not going to have fellowship with his evil works. When you obey his commandments, you will love the children of God. 1 John 5, 2. And part of his commandments was that I'm not going to give him God's speed. Why? Because he's not bringing the doctrine of Christ. I love truth and I love your soul more than just to get along. And I hope we will take that to our heart and to apply that in our, our lives. Thank you.